0: Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change.
1: Today's guest is Professor Martin Siegert, Professor at Imperial College London and co director of the Grantham Institute, Climate Change and Environment. His work involves the study of large ice sheets in the past, present, and future using combinations of numerical modelling, satellite observations, and glacier geophysical measurements. He's an author, prize winner, and ultimately, through his work, an Arctic explorer. Tilly and I wanted to begin our sustainability new podcast series with an exploration of the science to ensure some of the facts are promoted and socialized further. After all they underpin financial modeling and inform critical investment decisions. Welcome Professor Martin Seeger to our very first sustainability and new podcast. Tilly and I are absolutely delighted to have you join us for our first podcast today. We'd just like to hear from you, if we can, as an opening gambit, Martin, just tell us about your role at the the Grantham Institute.
2: Yeah, okay, the Grantham Institute, a pleasure to be here, by the way, is one of the six global challenge hubs at Imperial College. We are thematic rather than discipline-focused, and that's for good reason. Our theme is climate change and the environment. And if you were outside of Imperial and wanted to know what interests there were in that theme, You would find them in the business school, in science and in engineering and also in medicine. And one of the roles of the Global Challenge Institute and the Grantham Institute is to hold together that multidisciplinary interest in climate change and the environment that we have. Because we've got so many things that we have in common, it's a grand determination to understand this problem in a holistic sense and to do something about it. And of course, what our mission is is to help deliver the net zero outcome for our economy within the next 30 years. I mean, it really is one of the most important things that we can be doing right now, if not the most important thing. It's a huge challenge and universities need to step up and play their parts in doing it, as do many other parts of our society as well. So that's what I'm motivated. That's what we do. That's my my job. I'm also a, a polar scientist and uh, work in the Antarctic ice sheet and a little bit in the Greenland ice sheet as well, trying to understand how ice sheets operate in time, in the past, at the moment and in the future and what it means for sea level change.
1: Well, well, it's a very impressive resume, I have to say. And there's lots that we could talk about here. I'm particularly interested in the push you have towards collaboration on a multidisciplinary basis outside of your science field. But I'm equally interested in what you do within collaborating within the scientific field to bring greater connectivity between different disciplines that help us understand sea level rises more and climate weather patterns more. You have written about this extensively and recently as it relates to sea level projections. Perhaps you could tell us something about that and the observations that you have made
2: Right. So I guess the first thing to say is that when when we think about the level of the ocean all around us, there's a sort of common perception among us all in society that sea level is pretty much where it is and and it will stay there. But the truth of the matter is that historically it's changed a lot. I mean, talking about thousands of years, it's changed an awful lot. And by huge amounts as well. Mm -hmm. When I I start talking about sea level change, the first thing we have to do is put it into a sort of historical context. And that is 18,000 years ago, which might feel like a lot of time, but it really isn't geologically. It's just not yesterday, really, in geological terms. We were in the middle of an ice age and there was so much ice on the land that the level of the ocean was reduced because what happened when you build up an ice sheet, you take the water from the ocean, evaporate it, it precipitates as snow, on the land and it builds up an ice sheet and so the ice sheets build up and the sea level goes down the level of the ocean globally was about 130 meters lower than than it is now that's a huge amount i mean you could walk across from east anglia of course to the netherlands right it was a, a, the north sea didn't exist in the way that we know it now i quite often say this to people as an opening gambit sometimes early in the morning when we're having like meetings i say you sort of picture yourself. On the beach your favorite beach right anywhere in the world just think about it and you've got this lovely sun on your back and you're having a nice time and said "I'm look out what are you looking at and uh, says, "Oh, i'm looking at the sea it's lovely yes you are all of that all of that that you're looking at out to sea from the surface of the ocean to 130 meters beneath it is melted ice all of it And it melted over 10,000 years between about 18,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago because the world warmed. And why did the world warm? It's because the CO2 level went up from 180 parts per million to 280 parts per million. And that was enough. That was enough to cause global warming of somewhere around 45 degrees centigrade globally and the massive ice sheets to melt and the sea level to go up by a huge amount. So when you think about it in that context and you consider that we've increased the level of carbon dioxide. Since 1850, about 280 parts per million, which is what it should be, Mm -hmm. to over 415 parts per million, which is what it is now, which is greater than the increase between the ice age and the interglacial, and the bulk of that has happened in the last 60 years, you will struggle to suddenly realise that sea level will remain as it is, because the world is warming, and we know historically that when the world warms, the ice sheets melt and -hmm. the sea level goes up. And so we've hit this sort of, this pause in sea level rise because the climate um, stabilized itself over 10,000 years, Holocene, so what we refer to as the Holocene, until we started putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases, literally at an industrial scale. And so we have another phase of warming, right, that, that has been 10,000 years after the end of the last ice age. And it's us, it's people that are causing that warming. And of course, it's just natural glaciologically to expect that the ice is going to melt. And I'm sure people can understand that because when the world warms, the ice will melt and the sea level will go up. The question is, how much would it go up? And a lot of that is down to us and and, and whether we can curtail carbon dioxide emissions, whether we can stop them to net zero by the next 30 years. And if we do that... We might get lucky and the global temperatures will only be 1.5 degrees warmer than what they were in 1850. We're already more than one degree warmer. There's not much more we can do. We're kind of locked into at least another half a degree of warming or the warming goes much higher. Now, under those much higher warming scenarios, and that's essentially we fail to curtail our emissions somehow, then things get quite scary actually for for the climate and towards the end of the century and and beyond to the level that we might have three, four plus degrees centigrade of warming.
1: I see that the IPC has predicted just over a metre of rise by the end of the century if we're at about four degrees warming. Tell us about the, the ability to and the accuracy of forecasts and what history, historical modelling tells us about how we can predict for the future
2: Yes. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you're absolutely right. It's done a recent assessment on on a kind of worst case climate scenario of four degrees of warming and what that would mean for sea level rise. And there's no specific answer to this. And that's the first thing you have to understand, because when we're trying to to calculate what the sea level is going to be like from today and then compare it into the future, we have to use a a numerical model, a computer model to, to predict and project what the sea levels are going to be like into the future, and some of the models that we use are very sophisticated, and they're used extremely well, and they give us sort of scenarios as to as to what it might be into the future. So let's just sort of assume that all the models are doing a good job, and they're giving us uh, reliable information. What the IPCC tells us is that under this really strong warming scenario of four degrees sort of warming, then the sea level will be somewhere between, I think about 80 centimetres to 110 centimetres, so somewhere between 0.8 and 1.1 metres of sea level rise. But they ascribe a, a sort of likely scenario to that, and in IPCC language that means somewhere between 66% to 100% certainty of it. So what that could mean is there is, in the worst case scenario, that's only a 66% certainty that that envelope is correct. There's virtually no chance of it being less than 80 centimetres if warming gets to, to a four degrees centigrade, which tells us that there could be a one in three chance that the sea level will be higher than 1.1 metres. And often, because the way that the IPCC uses the language, is people don't understand that there is actually a tangible and, and, and significant Potential outcome that sea level rise could be more than 1.1 meter this century under that strong warming scenario. So, let's sort of interrogate a little further and work out what the models are actually doing. So, ice sheet models are quite sophisticated. They they help us understand how the ice flows, and it's grounded in a pretty good understanding of the physics in which ice flows, and and we use them to our best of our ability at the moment. And the IPCC does a really good job in gathering information from lots of different modelers and glaciologists all all around the world, and they come to a sort of consensus as to what these models are telling us at the moment. And that's brilliant. I mean, people spend a lot of time very thoughtful about putting these results together. There are issues with the approach, however, which we do have to understand. And that is, and this is true of any model you can can mention, right? any model. They're only as good as the data that go into them so that's the first problem of mm-hmm. and often there will be processes within the models that are just not captured very well by physics we don't understand them particularly particularly mm-hmm. well at the moment and so we have to sort of in the absence of a physical understanding of a process we have to parameterize it so we assign a value to it rather than calculate it mm-hmm. and for ice sheets the bit of the ice sheets that we know very little about in terms of observations measurements and in terms of the physics is the most important part of the ice sheet system. And that is where it's actually melting. And that is at the interface between the ice sheet and the ocean, because it's not just the global atmospheric warming that's causing the ice sheets to melt actually in, in Greenland and, and in Antarctica is ocean warmth uh, that's doing yes. it. And then it gets really complicated because now you've got to couple an ocean model into your ice sheet model. And again, you'll be wanting to get the most important aspects of that model to work really well in the bit that we know least about. And we're talking about some of the most remote parts of the planet, some of the most inhospitable places to work. We're trying to get these models to give us information about what they're going to do into the future. And actually, we don't know probably enough about what they're doing right now to be completely certain of it. So IPCC knows all this. And, and so it, it understands this is a problem, which is why that, that sort of scenario of, of, a, of a one in three chance of, of the sea level being higher than 1.1 meters, is, is sort of mentioned. If I have a problem with the process, is that, is that the next step of the translation of that message mm. is often obscured. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily by the scientists, just by the way that it's adopted by people who, through no fault of their own, aren't glaciologists and, and don't understand that, that, that actually these are really complex mm-hmm. problems that we're trying to solve, which aren't yet able to do it. Now, of course, there's lots of research that can be done and lots of improvements that can be made. And yeah. it's one of the, the most important things that our community as glaciologists, we can be looking to to, to help
1: with. Yeah, maybe we'll come on to that as we try and explore what that means for the finance sector. Um, I'd just like to explore a little bit some of these unknowns, if you can call them that, that we're talking about because they're unexplored areas that impact on Baltic melt. How likely is it that it would give rise to a non-linear climate change event? Because we tend to think of climate change as an iterative process. It happens over time at a fairly even rate, but some of these things, I'm assuming, could lead to quite catastrophic events. Not to be all doom and gloom, but I'd just like to explore your views on that.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So when you do a sea level projection from the yeah. IPCC, it, it will be a sort of relatively smooth curve, and that's pretty much all we're able to do. There's no criticism at all of the work. But when you look at sea level changes in the past, you see that actually they're quite jumpy. They go from relatively low rates of sea level rise to to quite high rates, and there were certain instances in the last deglaciation when all the big ice sheets around the world started to, to lose their mass and sea level to go up, called meltwater pulses. One at about fourteen thousand six hundred years ago, called this great name, meltwater pulse one a is called sea yeah. level rise. At that time, was somewhere between four maybe seven meters in a century wow and now ice sheets then are different to what they are now so there were there were ice sheets over north america and canada and great britain and and yeah eurasia and and they had um a lot of melting going on so so it's not right to say because that's happened in the past it definitely will happen in the future but it is fair to say that ice sheets can do that if the temperature warms right so it's, it's 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 also not fair to say that you can't there's nothing in the past that can tell us about what's happening in the future either so we do have to be careful about these things so how could the antarctic or the greenland ice sheet and those are the two big ice sheets that we're talking about by the way it's the polar ice sheets that are doing all the damage for sea level here mm-hmm. if you had there were 300,000 glaciers or so all around the world apart from greenland and, and antarctica all those glaciers melted they're contributing quite a bit to sea level rise right now but if they all suddenly melted sea level globally will go up by about, I think it's about 32 centimetres. So that's all the ice that's locked up in those 300,000 glaciers. It's a a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But it's only sufficient to raise sea level by 30 or so centimetres. But there's enough ice in the Greenland and the Antarctic ice sheet Mm -hmm. to raise sea level by over 65 metres. Wow. right and so so it's the polar ice sheets that are the most important thing and that's why we have a, such a focus on them in, in glaciology often people say why are you focusing on, on these ice sheets and you can go to other places and sometimes mm. more easy to get to to understand okay. it and there are good reasons to do that as well saying you shouldn't be trying to do that but really our focus if sea level understanding sea level changes our motivation then it's the greenland and the, and the antarctic ice sheets that we need to know more about And there are parts of those ice sheets, both in Greenland and and in Antarctica, and especially in Western Antarctica, are already losing a lot of mass. And we've been able to to measure that from satellites. The problem is we can't measure the actual place where they're melting, which is underneath the surface. We've got to get underneath the water to where the ice is interacting with that that water. And it's very difficult difficult to do that so that's our challenge so we have to to work a lot harder over the next 10 years to to improve our observations and our physical knowledge of the yeah
1: Yeah. and I know you've advocated for a lot of innovation within this space uh, and that's technological with automated underwater vehicles and other type of drone and satellite technology to support field work how much investment do you think is needed in that space to really help gain further insight
2: it's a really good question because you would never um, say turn down research income right as a a scientist you want to do that but i would say that you could get a really really comprehensive job done in in antarctica over say 10 years with a concerted effort and it would be you probably want to spend a few hundred million dollars on on that right you could do that if you had like 500 million dollars you would do an amazing job in terms of creating the innovation, deploying it, getting the observations, doing it at scale uh, and across the most imp- important places. We're not spending anywhere near that amount of money at the moment. We're spending maybe tens of millions globally on, on that problem. And when you think about the number of people that are are living close enough to the water's edge that they will be displaced or affected by sea level change in this century. You know, it's in the hundreds of millions. We need to take this a lot more seriously from an, an investment perspective.
0: Is there the desire to do that? And also, is there a concern about the time constraints in order to get that? Because the sea is obviously so
2: unexplored. So I think we know enough about the problem. To, to be able to target where to go in, in glaciology, you know, we know there are parts of the Western Antarctic Ice Sheet that are, that are losing mass much more than, than other places, and so that's the that's where you would go to. Right? And you, and we've kind of got the technology to be able to do it. The problem is, you can only manage to go there during the, the summertime, right, and in the Austral mm-hmm. summer. So that's those are your sort of time limited, and you need a significant amount of logistic to do it. So even if we wanted to do the project now, we we're going to say let's do a big project internationally we're going to spend 100 million and in five years time we're going to crack this at this particular location you can't just rock up tomorrow and do it right you're going to you need a lot of logistics planning A team has to be put together to do it so you really need sort of a few years to get all the logistics in place to get the ships where they are the aircraft where they are the fuel put in right all those things need, need a lot of time and planning to do i mean someone once said to me if you're planning to do serious research in antarctica with a big program with, with international people you need a decade really to to, to have the idea to put the, the the collaboration together to write the proposals to, to to do it to get the funding and then to put all the logistics and things like that in place well we don't really have 10 years you know if we give ourselves 10 years to sort of start that problem off we're, we're suddenly in 2030. Time is ticking on and this is an urgent issue. So I do think actually we need to reassess the way that we consider some research that we do. I think a lot of research works really naturally very well with with that model. But there are some things which are just super urgent and, and a better understanding of global sea level this century is one of those problems that actually we need to take that problem away from the normal way that we consider research funding and the way that science reacts to research funding and say this is a serious problem and we need a concerted international effort. We know we've got the teams available to do it. We know we've got technology and innovation that can do it. The recipient of that knowledge can be better constructed numerical models and we can start to reduce the uncertainty in sea level during this century then beyond it. And if we have a reduced uncertainty in sea level, I, I really try to understand what the sea level is going to be. That will help enormously with our ability to, to plan for the changes which are, which are coming.
1: So further funding and further collaboration, because you've talked about that the unification of ice sheet models, ocean thermal models and atmospheric models. The sort of combination of that really what about wider collaboration then with the finance community to raise levels of awareness around where there's risk and where there's need for innovation and therefore helping the finance community understand how it itself assesses risk
2: We might sort of just uh, sort of roll back a little bit and ask ourselves why would the finance community be interested in, in this sort of stuff right and and it kind of is obvious but it's worth saying nonetheless yeah. And that is that a lot of our investments that, that we make in our, our pensions for for example are, are investments for the long term. Right. Mm-hmm. So we make an investment now, we expect a return in those investments in say 30 plus years. I mean, if you just start out right now in your career, it could be 40, 40 plus years, right? That's the sort of thing. And that time horizon puts us into the second half of this century. And it puts us into a time where there should be, hopefully, a net zero global economy. Completely different to the one we've got at the moment. So the changes that are coming over the lifetime of of investments that we're making are are massive and considerable. The past really is no guide to what the future is going to be from an investment perspective. Absolutely. with, with, With all these things considered. And that's just understanding where to put your money, you know, investing in in, in zero carbon solutions and in organisations that are well equipped to consider what they're going to be like in the future under this zero carbon transition. But there's another thing, which is can organisations cope with the environmental change that's coming? Because some change is locked in, five degrees of warming. That is going to happen. That's a minimum that we can hope to get away with. And sea level rise is going to happen as well. I mean, the sort of minimum amount that's going to be at the end of this century is probably about half a metre. There's nothing we can do about that. It's already locked into the system. You know, ice takes a long time to melt, actually. So once you warm the, the ocean, warm the atmosphere, warm the ocean, it, I mean, the ice starts to melt and it takes a bit of time to complete that, that melting. So it's for sort the of baked in. So we have to appreciate that. So from an investment perspective, it's crucial that we give the investment industry proper knowledge of environmental information yes, so that they can make the right judgments of, of where to put investments, where it's safe, and also to understand what the risks of those investments actually mm-hmm. are in the second part of this century, because yeah. it, matters, it matters to our economy and it will matter personally to our, to our pensions.
1: Absolutely, and there's a lot of work that the insurance companies do, for instance, to try and assess what those future liabilities are in the world of tomorrow, but make the investments today that will deliver returns that they can match against those. A dependency on the models then that you, you and others are producing becomes ever more important. So, understanding where there may be risks within those models beyond current assumptions will be a hugely important. Thing, but as those models developed, bringing the finance community in to understand the rationale, I think is a huge area of sort of opportunity to collaborate Mm -hmm. and work together even more. Can you say a little bit about what you're doing in that field, and perhaps we can say something about the Green Finance Hub?
2: Universities are kind of siloed, aren't they? You have you have your social science faculty over here, your science faculty over here, you know, your medicine over here, and that's kind of it. In The last 50 years, that sort of siloing and partitioning has worked really well, right? It's been fantastic. And we've made advances in all of those areas discreetly. But when we're talking about climate change, it's a multidisciplinary problem. And and the way that universities are organized doesn't work particularly well from that perspective, because actually what we need to do is blend the knowledge and have this sort of, we have this shared mission and we have to bring people together. Now, from a climate finance perspective, that's a really good case in point of how we need to have this sort of this shared work between environmental scientists who understand the situation in terms of global warming and the research that's needed to be done to sort of to reduce uncertainties about what's 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 coming and the finance sector which is as we've spoken about needs that information to understand where the best place to put investments is and to understand what the risks to those investments actually are and so what we need to do is to sort of bring them all together we need to create these individuals who have sort of depth of knowledge in more than one subject, you know, understand about climate change and things, and also understand about finance and, and, and business acumen and, and what have you. This is something that's now being appreciated. And, and the the UK Research Councils has now funded a center called UK Center for Greening Finance and Investment. We should kind of aim to do just this. It's led by Oxford and includes Imperial College where there'll be a London hub for for knowledge exchange, et cetera. It involves Leeds University and Bristol University and and some other institutions as well. And it's designed to do just this. It's sort of in two steps, actually. The first step is to understand from the financial sector what type of environmental data are needed, what is needed in the industry, what is the format of the data, how can we sort of normalise and regulate the data, and how can we provide it? to the industry in a way that's that's consistent and kind of automated as well so that we're providing that information uh, and it it can become updated naturally and and, and automatically because things change we need to make sure that that happens so the first phase is to is to have this sort of two-way exchange where that information is or that problem is settled the next phase is to operationalize the center where having got the data In formats that can be used by the financial industry to have an operational centre that's issuing this information out to where it's needed. And so the whole center can provide a great, great service to to the finance industry so that we properly understand how to to de-risk investments, how to to, to make investments into the future that will be compliant with with zero carbon, and how to, to not make investments that will do do the wrong thing or be too risky. So at the moment, you know, there's there's this awareness that better information is needed and all the centre is trying to do is to is to fill the gap.
1: And how can people engage with this centre, Martin, if they have an interest in those data outputs and collaborating?
2: So we have a translation hub. And uh, we will be basing uh, that hub at the Warren Institution of Great Britain in in Mayfair. And we will be, um, just one, there'll be two hubs. In fact, one will be in Leeds and we will be doing a similar job and one will be at Imperial College. And it will be very outward faced and open and we'll be telling people about advances that we're making in this issue. We'll be telling stakeholders and businesses and and anyone who wants to know about it, holding events and meetings and showcasing advances that we're doing. The whole point of that part of the centre is to be open door and outward faced. And very willing to, to speak to lots of other things. And that's exactly what we do with the Grantham Institute, by the way. One of our missions that we have in the Grantham Institute is to do just that, to tell people about things. And I have to say, it's the mission of the Royal Institution of Great Britain as well. which was set up, we shouldn't forget, set up in the late uh, 18th century to sort of showcase the scientific and engineering advances that were powering the Industrial Revolution. That was the point of the Royal Institution. And that sort of has come full circle. We now need to do the same thing to understand the science and engineering solutions that are powering the zero carbon transition.
1: I think it's a really positive and hugely exciting next step. So I'm hoping our listeners will want to reach out and engage with you around this. I know that you're also a huge advocate for encouraging the next generation of researchers, let alone advocates like Tilly, who want to be leaders of tomorrow within the sustainability space. And maybe this is a good time to hand over to you, Tilly, to ask your question on behalf of our young
0: ambassadors
1: to to Martin so over to you Tilly.
0: Yeah so I think what's really interesting to me and actually you sort of started to answer it (laughs) and answer the question I wanted to ask you in the last part of what you were just saying and I think what it is is something that's really striking for me is the kind of loss in translation of the importance of this whole thing it's something that I actually heard Greta Thunberg, um, talking about a couple of days ago in an interview and she was using the word crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think that terminology gets lost or kind of trivialised a lot of the time in the process because I think the supply chain... Of communication is getting longer. So the scientists are kind of there at the source and the information is really raw. And I think that kind of sense gets lost by the time it gets to the individual. And so something I was quite interested in finding out from you is how you think we're able to kind of develop or strengthen those lines of communication between the really raw, kind of the stuff that's really hard hitting that you've just been talking about, which everyone needs to know about in order to really make their impact in an adequate and in a really actionable way and by the individual I kind of mean everyone who because I I feel like you know there's several echelons of each generation and of society as a whole you know there's those who really care and then there's those who sort of are kind of caught up in the whole trendiness and the fad of being sustainable and then there's those that are sort of think that they don't play a part. And I'm just interested in all the work that you've been doing with the Grantham Institute and now with the Green Finance Hub, how you think we're able to convey the importance of the issue.
2: This is the most important problem that we that we have. until it'll be your generation whose careers will be defined whether we succeed or fail. I mean the problem has been created by my generation and, and people before me, but it's your generation that we look to over the next 30 years to deliver that zero carbon global economy. You know, I mean, it's easy to say it like that, isn't it? And we, we hear about it enough. And if you hear it enough times, you just sort of get used to it. But actually consider what is needed to do it. And it's a phenomenal change in the way that we live on our, on our planet. And so there are so many problems that fall out when you sort of unpick this a little bit. I guess the first is that as a society, we're not very well connected into the natural world that surrounds us. We've isolated ourselves from the natural world we live in cities and we refer to cities as urban environments, right? Which are which is just a construction, right? It's a human construction, and that's what we've we've done. But what it means is, is we're not really well linked to the natural world a- anymore. And more than 50% of the world's population now lives in cities. And 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 everything we need to live on our planet comes from the natural world. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food that we eat, right? And, and, the, and the energy, right? It all comes from the natural world somewhere or another. And I think it's been a real problem. If you ask me, one you know, of the, the, the one of the great failings in our society, and there's been many, but one of them is is that actually we've lost connection with with what's important in the natural world. So one thing to repair is certainly that, and is and it's to better understand that we cannot live on our planet without the world, the greater natural world that around us, and actually to start regarding our urban environments as part of the natural world rather than just sort of concrete things which we which we live in and then there were so many other um, problems that we ha- have to overcome how do we decarbonize how do we do it and it needs businesses to engage and therefore it needs people whose careers will be defined by by that because things have to change it needs leadership within those businesses and so how do we imagine that that leadership is going to um, be formed Well, it needs training and we need to train people with the right skills that have equipped to be able to do that. And so we have to ask ourselves, then what well, are universities providing the skills that these businesses, these organizations desperately need? We could ask ourselves that question. And unfortunately, the answer is no, probably not. Not at the level that's needed. We're training people with disciplinary skills that have s- served us really well over the last 50 or so years. Right, we are done a phenomenal job right, in doing that. But what we're talking about now, as we've explained in some other things, is this sort of this multidisciplinary learning, not just having expertise in one thing, but having expertise and appreciation of lots of things, because that's how you make better decisions if you're able to do that. So we do a programme at Imperial College between the Grantham Institute and our business school. It's called Climate Change Management and Finance. And you might think, well, that's pretty straightforward, climate change and finance. That should be everywhere. That's that's. It's such an important topic. There must be every single business school in the world must have a dedicated program on climate change and finance. We can't find any that have that program apart from at Imperial College. And that's insane, isn't it? This is the most important thing that we're facing, and climate finance is so critical to mobilizing the zero-carbon transition. Why aren't business schools, why aren't universities completely on top of this and providing... Thousands and thousands of people. You know, we do 100 people a year with with the skills in in this area. We need thousands a year to to make the difference. So one thing that I'm really passionate about is is trying to understand how universities do a better job equipping people, society, with the skills that we know are needed to to activate this zero-carbon transition. You know, we look to governments, to uh, Glasgow meeting coming up, Right, in yeah. COP26, but we've got to governments to help us with it. And governments can only do so much. Right? I, I th- often think, think people um, expect too much from, from governments. They can only do so many things. Businesses, non-state actors are quite important here. Mm-hmm. Businesses, cities, people, you know, that, that's where a lot of, of, of activity and, and action can, can happen. The most important thing, I think, really is, is for our society to understand that the future, the next 30 years, is going to be very different to the last 30 years. But unfortunately, I look at the way society goes and I see that people are buying bigger and bigger cars. We're flying more than ever. Our consumption is going up, not not down. You know, it's going in the wrong direction. And I think we we urgently need to reassess the way that our society, especially in sort of Western Europe and, and in America, the way that we live on this planet is not sustainable. Now, often when people say that, they, they have a negative reaction. They start to think, "Well, you're trying to make my life worse as, as a consequence." And I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to make it better. Saying we need to clean up our cities. We need to have cleaner air. Right. We need to have renewable energy, uh, cheaper energy bills. We need to to insulate our homes. They're better places to live in. You know, we need to we need to improve our lives. But unfortunately, through advertising and vested interest and things like that, we've normalized the way that we live on our planet. So that it becomes normal to fly in an aircraft halfway around the world for a week's holiday. right? That's the sort of thing that our society has done. And that's not something that you can say has been the case for anything in human existence apart from the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years. So we've suddenly normalized this massive change and we know it's not right. We know we can't sustain it. We know it's unfair. And we have to do. We really, really have to do something about this. So that was a very long answer to your
1: question. So you've given us some very powerful calls to action, there, Martin. Which is a nice place for us to conclude. Really, you've talked about the power of education, the power of collaboration, and the power of you being the individual. You know, we can all make changes, and we can all make a difference. And I'm sort of very grateful for those thoughts and and for you sharing your deep insights. And thank you for everything that you're doing within this sector to bring about change as well, because it is it, it obviously phenomenal and, and important to us as we you know, address these challenges as we move forward. So thank you for your time today. Much appreciated. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Thank you very much.